This is episode 67 with the co-founder of High Performance West, the prior assistant coach of the Portland State University track team and coach to many elite and up-and-coming athletes, Mr. Jonathan Marcus. Buckle up, runners. You're in for a real treat today. I'm talking to a high-level coach who is a student of the sport, someone who loves learning and teaching and communicating with the greater running community. My guest is Mr. Jonathan Marcus, a philosopher of sorts when it comes to high performance. He was previously an assistant track coach at Portland State, and before that, he spent time as a coach in the Division I NI, let me start over, <laughs> NAIA post-collegiate club in Oregon high school levels. Jonathan has also been heavily involved in the local and national running community with the Portland Track Festival, USA Track and Field, Nike's Bowerman Track Club, as well as the Run Portland and Team Athena Running Clubs. He was appointed USA Track and Field High Performance Coordinator for the men's middle distance in 2011, and his national role with USATF included serving as co-meet director for the prestigious USATF High Performance Track Meet held annually at Occidental College. Currently, he's the director of High Performance West, an elite training group in Portland, Oregon. He also has an incredibly enlightening and action-packed podcast that I love and listen to myself with fellow coach Steve Magnus called On Coaching. I highly recommend it. All right, before we start our conversation today, I'd like to announce a new sponsor for the podcast, Steady MD. I recently learned about this new type of medical care for runners, and I immediately reached out to its founder, Dr. Josh Emder. What he's done is create a platform that connects runners with a primary care physician who's also a runner. And this is critical. I think anybody who's seen a physical therapist who isn't a runner knows that you're not going to get the same care from a sedentary provider. They're just not going to understand your need to get back out there and run. A doctor that is a runner just like you and who understands the things that are important to any level of runner, things like your training plan, nutrition, shoes, running form, common injuries. In other words, this is the runner's doctor. So you're going to meet via phone or video call, or you can text them anytime to get personalized medical care that's specific to your needs as a runner. You can go to steadymd.com slash strengthrunning to see all the details and how you can get more personal, tailored medical care that's specific to your needs as a runner. The URL one more time is steadymd.com backslash strengthrunning. In this episode, Jonathan and I are going to discuss the value of reading for coaches and runners, the soft skills important in coaching, how to develop more cognitive coping skills for when running gets hard, and it always does, and reasons a runner might be experiencing a performance plateau. We had some technical difficulties right at the beginning, so we're going to jump right in and listen to Jonathan describe the books that he's reading right now. Anytime you're trying to communicate to an athlete or a group of athletes a new concept or something that they might not be familiar and comfortable with, you have to kind of figure out how to bridge that chasm. Um, that's one. Um kind of also been softly reading uh, self-efficacy with uh, on Bandura, uh, a bunch of different texts. And right now it's his book on, let me see, get here. Yeah, self-efficacy, the exercise of control. And just talking more about how 
we persuade ourselves um, with our precursor of thoughts and how we think about who we are, what we're doing, what we're competent of, and how that actually has a very high correlative impact to how we can perform or how we act in the world as agents of change or um, agents of not change if you know that impedes us uh, from acting in one way or the other. And then finally, um, been finishing um, David Graeber's book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years, getting us thinking more about money, currency, and how actually um, debt is a form of exchange because um, it used to be right before we had this idea of money as this placeholder. We had this person-to-person exchange, a chicken for an apple or you know uh, uh, some type of work for uh, a return favor. And so how this idea of money and debt has separated us a little bit in society rather than bring us closer, it's kind of bringing us further apart. And then to just understanding that money is more or less in this day and age of fiat currency not really based on anything since we went off the gold standard. And if anything, now the dollar is more like a petrodollar um, based off oil. That's why all our interests are surrounded in the Middle East and have been for the last couple of decades. So pretty interesting. So you can kind of see a very wide range of topics and nothing at the moment really like running centric. But in some way, they all kind of come back to running, training and competing and performing um, because they all have to deal with uh, elements of the human psyche. Well, I was going to ask you, you know, if you're a running coach, why read all these books that aren't about running? You know, I've, I think I kind of went down the typical path of a coach in that I started reading every running book that I could get my hands on. But after a certain period of time, I realized that, you know, man, all these books are so similar that I'm not getting much out of them anymore. Um, so, you know, is it simply to understand the human psyche? I mean, why read books that, that aren't really about running if your goal isn't just, you know, to kind of become a smarter person and more knowledgeable and more wise, hopefully, but to become a better coach? The great thing about books, right, is books are really intimate um, exchange between you and the author. So you get for like the bargain price of $10, $20, essentially an author or, you know, a couple authors and editors thoughts, deep thoughts, um, curated thoughts, very articulate thoughts, and well, hopefully well-researched thoughts on a specific topic. So it's kind of like you get a like get this finite marriage, uh, you know, thought marriage, if you will, um, and that can help challenge your belief, challenge your worldview, etc. And you know, going back to why I've pivoted away just from reading a lot of the classical running texts is one like yourself. I exhausted them. So, I mean, I started off in the, that domain and read every, um, you know, book on running, training, um, strength training, uh, physiology I get my hands on. And after about, you know, four or 500 books, uh, you're right, it starts to get a little bit repetitive because there's not much new um, dimensions that can be brought to physiology and training that hasn't already been expounded um, very well from authors, scientists, and coaches of past and present. And then two, it's uh, really Vern Gambetta um, challenged me on that to take a more, more multidisciplinary approach. And, you know, even when you think about training, right, you want to have some variability in your training. So just sitting here every day and just running uh, 10 miles a day to infinity with no variability, it'll only get you to a certain threshold of fitness and ability and capacity and, um, you know, you kind of stagnate and plateau. Same deal here. If you're just reading and you're staying one dimensional 
kind of in the running training performance genre, I think you're losing a huge um, opportunity to expound and think more critically about uh, the influence of the human psyche and the neural um, physiology upon just our essential cardiovascular or thoracic physiology. And we, we invest in, you know, modern day distance running a lot of time, effort, and energy in understanding that thoracic metabolism and what's going on with the engine and the, you know, as people call it, or the pump with the hearts and lungs and, you know, a, you know oxygen being transported to the muscles and back, et cetera. And we forget that actually there's a whole lot of different systems, the lymphatic system, the endocrine system that originate from the perception of the world through our eyes and how the brain interprets that. And then also, too, you have a whole lot of chemicals that get dumped into the body and do influence one's ability to perform. So how we control our thoughts and our emotions and our perceptions in the performance environment, and even the training environment, is really key. But unfortunately, we don't have as much hard science uh, available as we do kind of from, you know, uh, the physiology perspective because we just don't have the tools to concretely measure them yet. And it's really, you know, neurobiology is really uh, kind of a very loose and fascinating um, hobby of mine and just uh, kind of trying to interpret that and stay up to date as best I can. I mean, a lot of it's way over my head, but I still try to, you know, read that literature and um, absorb it to some degree because it's just it's a fascinating new frontier and I think we're learning leaps and bounds as we begin to understand the brain better and more as we get better tools to interpret what's actually going on. Well, I think this is really instructive and I think it's it's helpful for runners to hear a coach talk about training runners from you know, kind of this varied perspective, this understanding that, you know, we can't simply rely on exercise science books to get the most out of our athletes, that there's a lot of, you know, other factors at play that we have to, um, you know, take into consideration. And, you know, I've listened to your podcast on coaching with Steve Magnus. I follow you on Twitter. Uh, I read your blog on High Performance West. And it does seem like that you are interested in a lot of issues that are often considered outside the realm of something a running coach might care about. So you've, you've mentioned the importance of empathy, of recognizing bias, of having humility with what you know and with what you don't know. Can you sell me on why a coach or a runner should care about this stuff? Well, I think it, it comes down to hubris, right? I mean, all the great uh, Greek tragedies and even um, uh, great Greek stories, you know, of Western literature and all literature has to do with hubris. And I, you know, it's just saying to think we know it all is the absolute, you know, epitome of hubris. And, uh, you know, when you're younger, you, you know, it's, it's that famous adage in the proverb, right? The more you know, the more you know you don't know. Um, and when you're younger, you're so certain of the world. You're so certain because your your context in your world is very small. And so inputs of one plus one equals two. And I remind athletes this all the time. Um, unfortunately, that's not reality. Sometimes the inputs of one plus one equals negative 20. Sometimes it equals 2,000. And we try to create a uh, prescription of certainty around training that if you do XYZ number of reps at your threshold pace, your anaerobic threshold or your lactate threshold or aerobic threshold, what have you, you're going to see this um, return on investment that's you know, kind of immediate, and it's not, um, especially at the performance level, that, that requires a lot more patience. And two, um, that patience has to come in the interpersonal relationship and dynamic as well. 
you know, as I've coached longer and longer, I realized I'm a better coach for some athletes on a certain journey. I'm an awful coach for other athletes on another journey. And I think it's understanding what journey, what path that person's on. And if you as a coach can be a supporting mechanism to encourage them to walk those steps down that road. For myself, I've gravitated more into the kind of, you know, what I call high performance or, you know, really is kind of this, Steve and I, we operate, we say in this purgatory between, um, you know, world-class medalists and athletes and then people who are um, trying to find their direction outside of after uh, competing collegiately or um, competitively in the collegiate system. And there's this, kind of gray area of people who could springboard and become our next national champions and next Olympians or who for whatever reason just might not have the environment and the support to uh, get to that level. So that's where Steve and I have chosen to take residence and help athletes who want to experience the highest competitive capacity that they're capable of given their personal setup in life. And it might not be in a very you know, sexy or um, uh, famous training group, but it'll be because they they want to inherently walk down that path. And then too, it's just that empathy also uh, really matters a lot because I don't know every day where each athlete is standing and how they're interpreting the world. So it's a lot of questioning, a lot of checking in, a lot of dialoguing and, you know, just getting kind of a rhythm with that person. And two, as we also know, People change, um, you know, myself as a coach and athletes and, you know, I've walked away or I've had athletes walk away from me and vice versa just because we're not on a shared journey anymore. And that's fine, you know, but it's you got to commit to the journey through and through. And I think it's just being clear and articulate and upfront about what that looks like for each person. And if, you know, a coach can support that athlete's journey or not, you know, if we're solely playing an accounting game, which I think sometimes we default to, right, we play an accounting game of how many miles a week am I running? You know, will that translate to an improved performance in terms of how fast can I run this 10K or this half marathon? And when you think about it, those accounting matrix are completely arbitrary. You know, we it's a week, we just defined a week as seven days and we said how many miles you run in a week in seven days, you know, can have a high value or high cor- correlation between improvement and performance. And then we say, oh, well, how fast you run this distance of 15k or 10k, you know, demonstrates that you're getting better. And through and through and through in the performance world, just because you put in the work doesn't necessarily entitle you to the result. Um, Just because it's such a competitive arena. And I've had athletes who their body work has been phenomenal for two, three years, and they're not seeing the performance uh, that's correlative to that body work, and they get frustrated, they get down, they get on themselves. And then we have to c- create different coping strategies or maybe even workout or racing strategies to help kind of like breathe some life back into their performance. Um, and then all of a sudden they skyrocket and take off, and then performance is, you know, exponentially phenomenal, the best it's ever been. So it's a very complex thing. And I don't mean to go off on tangents, but that's what Steve and I are known for in a lot of ways. And I think as I've aged as a coach, I've just respected the complexity in the environment of each athlete and each environment, environmental um, dynamic that that athlete exists in, and then really try to speak towards and coach towards that um, versus just saying, hey, here is a quick recipe, like on the back of your chocolate chip cookies, um, uh, Toll House morsels, you know, five 
five parts this, two parts that, one part this, and then you get the same cookie every time. And that's not the, to me why I coach. I coach for uh, growth, not only for myself, or and not only for the athletes, but also for myself. So it's kind of symbiotic in that nature. Well, I'll I'll certainly uh, commend you for kind of working in that purgatory of, um, you know, sub elite runners who are not quite world class, who who might actually be elite, but uh, are not competing, you know, at at you know world-class levels. I think it's a really difficult group of athletes to train, but uh, it can be quite rewarding when you do see those breakthroughs. Um, let, let's talk briefly about breakthroughs. You know, you talked more about, um, you know, these runners who have great training for years, but their performances simply aren't coming together. What are some reasons why their the physical side of things, their training, the, the accounting side of their training is great you know they're putting in the mileage they're doing the workouts they're executing on those workouts but then when it comes to race time they can't execute what are some of the reasons in your experience that runners find themselves in that kind of a situation i think there's three that come to mind one is um i was talking with my good friend mike smith the director of northern arizona cross country track and field and he says you know a lot of times we structure training or homework or preparation as nail this specific uh, energy system and so run k's at your repeat k's at your 5k race pace or run you know uh broken mile repeats at your 15k threshold pace or what have you right and then we reward that and we give an a and you say great job you you know you're a 14 35k runner and you just ran you know uh, six by a k at 250 you're ready to go and we create this false sense of security that it's a direct translation of just being a physiological robot. And then we get into the racing environment and, they, you know, these people severely lap the coping skills, um, cognitive coping skills to be able to push and redline and be able to keep going when it, it gets really difficult or they start, you know, taking um, – uh, stock of what time they're running per lap versus what place they are relative to their competitors in the racing environment. And so the, there's a loss of translation there, right? So I think that's that's first and foremost knowing, like I said, the inputs one plus one does not always equal two. And, you know, understanding that we need to create more variability or, you know, uh, ask the athlete, to do a lot more things that are um, maybe not quite as objective or concrete in practice. So, you know, one that's famous a method is fartlek, right? That's, I think, sometimes often underutilized and underunderstood in our current day and age, but it has a very compelling psychological enhancement prop, um, prop uh, capability um, and offers people to go beyond these preconceived constraints of running some sp- specific pace on the track and then two another thing is just you know it's about what you the thoughts you let in your head right on race day it's on task versus off task thinking so in a workout their workouts typically to be you know are very prescribed um, very regimented they're very known they're known entities do 15 times a quarter at this pace with this much rest got it i can do this in a race, the only really known entity is the distance you're covering. And then every competitor, you might be familiar with them or you might not. And that creates 
this um, completely unknown and insecurity dynamic, and it depends how the athlete um, operates in that type of environment. Are they a creative person? Can they just respond really well to an ever-changing and uncertain environment and thrive in that? Or are they not? And do they need to have a more concrete and specific race plan? And that's where a lot of times you see people gravitate towards a pacing strategy in races because that gives the athlete some control or a sense of control and concreteness. But then we miss the opportunity if we're so wedded to just run these laps at this pace to actually play in the space and play with the competition. And, you know, we know that the roots of competition are compite, which is to seek together. And we miss that opportunity to seek with our peers in our cohort of that race to elevate us to the, the and, and a threshold we never thought possible. And then finally, too, it's also expectation. You know, it's just people expect in this day and age that if I, um, you know, work at a certain threshold or have, you know, a certain block of training, and that means magically I'll just be able to like be a zombie and you know walk around the track or walk or rock, walk down the the marathon course at this pace. But a lot can happen um, from the start to the finish in any race. You know whether it's a uh, uh, 800 meters or it's a marathon. There's a lot of interesting things that can crop up, and we tend to expect things to be stable and static and predictable when that is the exact inverse of the reality of the racing environment. So it's very interesting how we prepare versus what we're really getting into when we step onto the stage and perform in the theater of a race. And I think I've been more and more curious about uh, why those translations aren't happening and then working with each individual to try to encourage and create some type of framework for them to help them cope and help them thrive in an unpredictable crucible, which is race day. Yeah, it sounds like the kind of differentiation you're making between why athletes might not be able to put it together on race day is because any race, even if it's as short as an 800 or as long as an ultra marathon up to 100 miles, you know, it's there's so much variability that can happen in a race. You know, I like to say that after, you know, mile 20 or so in a marathon, it's like the wild west. Anything can happen. You don't Mm -hmm. know what can happen. (laughs) And, uh, you have to be prepared for that. And I think it's really hard to, to train for that. There's this element of being anti-fragile and exposing yourself to, uh, different variables that, you know, you may not want to expose yourself to, you know, you, you probably don't want to go running when it's 85 degrees out or when it's really cold out. Um, but those, you know, kind of weather stimulus stimuli that you're getting, uh, are going to help you when all of a sudden it's race day and it's really hot out or it's really cold out. Um, one thing that you've written about before, Jonathan, I want to touch on is this idea about um, training your emotional response to adversity. And you kind of touched on that when we were talking about racing, but I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit more um, because I think it's the the emotional fitness that we have, particularly in a race situation, can often be the difference between you know winning a race, running a personal best, otherwise having a great performance, or or simply just having, you know, another humdrum performance where, you know, you don't perform to your absolute limits? Yeah, that's a great question, Jason. Um, you know, I, the one constant in every race is you, the athlete. 
right? So training can be different. The environment can be different. The distance can be different. You know, you can wear a different singlet, you can wear different shoes, et cetera. And I think sometimes what I've noticed between higher performing athletes, uh, and I've, you know, I've coached a spectrum from middle school athletes to national champions, you know, um, to like, you know, marathon uh, masters athletes trying to qualify to Boston, you know, high school, college. I mean, I've, you know, at least over five, 500 athletes in my coaching career to date um, from all walks of life. And I've noticed the higher achievers on race day, they have a certain inherent knowing that they can make it like they, you know, and the, what I, it might be a little opaque, but uh, initially, but like that person just has, it doesn't matter if I've done all the work, if I've checked every box and if everything went to plan on training day or not, or if I missed, you know, two, three weeks of training due to illness or injury or, you know, some type of, uh, other, uh, externally uncontrollable acti- uh, event, they know they, they can do it. And it, it, it's this inherent knowing. And then sometimes what happens is what I've seen is athletes who are not as far along that path, they freak out and they look at when things don't go well on race day, what's wrong with my training? What's wrong with these externals? What's wrong with these externals? And they, they look to the external. Is it the shoe I wore? Is it my fueling strategy? Is it all these external things? Is it my training? Is it this and that? Instead of the people who time and time again show up and produce and perform well and achieve at you know to their fullest capability that day, they look internal. It's all about me, me, me. What didn't I do? Why didn't I bring extra? Why, you know, what was my perception on that day? And it's been a very interesting uh, dichotomy to see now with a little bit of perspective and a little bit of age as I've kind of walked through all these different uh, running um, coaching performance levels. And it's just how do you move someone to be more internally focused and centered rather than externally, um, um, you know, almost like, um, handcuffed, right? Because it's like we look to all these external things. We have all these external measures available to us with all these great tools. But at the end of the day, you know, you hear this right all the time. Running is a simple activity. It's just run as fast as you can for the distance and then see what happens. And there is a certain degree of tolerance one must inherently have for that, you know, discomfort or redlining or that pain, right, that comes from pushing yourself to your maximum threshold and then not knowing if you can go another step, but being curious to see if you can go another step. And it's that curiosity of, well, maybe just one more step, one more lap, you know, right around the corner. I think those are the people who tend to excel in this environment, performance environment versus the people who just want a very solid um, easy return on their investment of time and training. And you hear that all the time, right? People are like, well, I worked so hard. I, I've done all the workouts. I did all the mods. I ate. I slept. I did. I just, I deserve this. And it's like someone should just hand them, you know, a certificate for saying, well, you did all the work that correlates to someone who ran, you know, uh, 245 for the marathon. So we'll just give you the certificate. No, you still have to go out and prove it. You still have to go out and earn it. You still have to go out and repeat it. I'll never forget. I was running with like Chris Linsky, um, the year after he had his huge breakthrough, you know, where he broke 27 for the 10 K and ran sub 13 for the 5 K. And it still resonates with me to this day. We were on a run, you know, he was just coming back from uh, a layoff and I was in really good shape. So, you know, I was getting hammered and <laughs> he was, he was jogging easy, but, uh, I asked him to go slow. When 
you know, in those races uh, that this past summer. So <clears throat> he broke uh, the American record in the 10 and ran, you know, I think two or three times under 13 to five. When did it start to hurt? When did it start to be uncomfortable? When did you really have to have a gut check? And I was going to expect him to say like, you know, a mile to go or something like that. He goes after 200 meters, after 200 meters, <laughs> every race after 200 meters, I had a gut check every single race. And that really spoke to me. And you, you look at this and you're like, wow, that was like arguably one of the most stellar seasons we saw from an American distance runner. Maybe, you know, Alan Webb's 2007 season is equally on that, that pinnacle. But here's a guy who, you know, was a, a phenom from high school and college and doing things no one ever did uh, at, at a world-class level for Americans. And it hurt after 30 seconds of every race. So I, I think there's a lot to be learned from that. And he was more in, internally focused about how to manage that, but he was so curious and keyed up to compete at that level because he, to himself, he thought he deserved to honor his work by seeing how far, how fast he could go rather than being externally focused and saying he should be able to go this far, this fast, because he's done all this work. So it's a very subtle um, perceptive shift, but a very important shift that hugely impacts not only the process, but also the outcome. Let's take a step back and give our listeners some really actionable, concrete suggestions for how they can really put into practice some of the lessons that and principles that we've been discussing for the last 20, 25 minutes or so. So we've talked about cognitive coping skills. And I think a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, mental toughness and the psychological tools that we need to, to be resilient in a race, to be tenacious, to uh, give ourselves permission to go after it right from the beginning and not, just think about the accounting side of things or how how we feel and really just focus on, you know, getting out there and giving it our all. What can we do in a training environment, even though a training environment is not as variable as a race, to create those kinds of uh, variations or uncertainty or just lack of structure that you're going to find in a race. Cause I think that's critical. You have to put yourself in situations, you know, just like we do specific workouts for, you know, the race that we're training for, I think we should, you know, add in those little wrinkles to our training that are going to simulate some of that uncertainty as well. What are your suggestions mm -hmm. for that? There's a lot one can do. Um, you know, like we can draw on a lot of different coaches who are far more successful and knowledgeable than I who have introduced that. So like um, Joe Vigil and, you know, Carl's Handler with Big Bear Track Club with like, say, Brenda Martinez and Boris Burian, they often introduce what they call a tag, which is at the very end of a workout, sometimes impromptu, they'll say, okay, great, you just did this really difficult workout, five by a mile repeat, you know, 5k race pace, now go run a quarter all out. Let's just see what you got. You know, and it's just, that's the curiosity. Let's just see what you got. Not, we're going to judge it. Not, it's good or bad. Let's just see what you got. You're really tired now. Let's see what you got. Um, you know, that tag can sometimes be very intelligent here and there to uh, introduce because it just shows you kind of that Paul Turgot quote, you know, you know, when you ask yourself, is the question, can I give more? The answer is always yes. And um, just shaping that familiarity with that ability that I'm really fatigued and tired like you are in a race and you can keep going just a little bit further and faster than you thought. And just, again, being curious, not, um, not necessarily, 
uh, having a preconceived um, uh, output or desire from it, which is, again, opening, opening is the heart and mind to just see what you got. The other one is uh, Scott Simmons in his um, very little known uh, book that he wrote before he became the, you know, uh, WCAP uh, coach of Paul and, you know, Paul Chalimo and the, the cohort of just amazing uh, athletes up there in Colorado Springs is Take the Lead. And he introduced this concept, and I read this very early on, called the hammer interval. So if you're doing 10 times a quarter, the eighth quarter, you run it as hard as you can. Um, and then you see, you know, if you can maintain the rhythm and tempo that you had pre, pre uh, designated and designed for the ninth and tenth quarter, right? So you introduce kind of in the last fifth of the workout a very abrasive uh, uh, rep that again has no predetermined outcome, but you just is more effort based in saying, okay, I'm give it everything I have, and then I'm going to see if I can finish the last two at the pre-designed tempo um, now that I'm extra fatigued. So those are two very concrete ways to do it if you're on the track. Um, you know, if you're, And again, if you're doing more of a fartlek-based session, same situation, right? Run for time. You know, Unfortunately, we have this amazing machine called the GPS, which can track you know, pace and distance. But still, at the end of the day, the stopwatch is the best, um, best tool. And you know, in my opinion, it's, it's simple, it's elegant. And just go by time. And if you study like Stephen Seller's work uh, based off of uh, different um, physiological parameters for endurance athletes where you can maximize kind of a uh, fitness increase for certain time-based parameters. So staying at sweet spot of about 48 minutes, right, um, of, of reps at kind of, you know, for us it translate to anywhere between 10K and 5K race pace. And doing that type of effort, that's the, that's the key distinguishing um, factor is that effort-based um, interpretation. Because if you're going to be in New Orleans doing a tempo run and it's you know prescribed to be 30 minutes at six-minute pace, but it's 85% humidity and you know 75 degrees, that's going to be very difficult to hit that arbitrary time or pace for that distance versus if you just say, I'm going to run half an hour at my perceived half marathon pace in this environment, you can walk away having gained a lot from that. But yet we look to, um, you know, we, we look to these externals of the pace or the distance as this instance gravitation. You know, I, I remind people long before we had social media with the likes and retweets and hearts, et cetera, and we had that dopamine hit, the runner had the pace and mileage dopamine hit. That's very gratifying, you know, to write in your daily in your training log, a hundred miles were ran this week versus ninety-two miles were ran this week. It's eight miles, it's an hour of running, but it creates a whole different type of hit. And then finally, you know, what I encourage everyone to do, no matter who you are in life, write every day. Like write every day. My blog you know, is just as much of a, a practice for myself and a discipline for myself to help me think about um, things and articulate them and share them in the world, um, you know, to an audience, but also to just enhance my um, communication skills and also how I shape thoughts and how I interpret uh, the world around me. And if you don't want to write a blog, you don't need to. Something very simple is just, a, a you know, you hear it all the time, a journal, but make it a daily practice, five minutes, 10 minutes, just keep writing. And as sooner or later, you'll figure out what to write about. You don't need to sit there and do a report of like, today I did this or today I want to do that. Just write and just write pen to paper and do it. Um, you know, I also keep a constantly just, 
you know, a little uh, thought notebook where it's like when errant thoughts come in my head, I got to write them down. Otherwise, they kind of go out into the ether and I forget them. And I've had like the greatest blog posts or workouts or thoughts about, you know, helping an athlete. I was like, oh, this is great. And then I'd lose them and I'd be like so frustrated and they never come back. So now I just write it down. So I have empty space in my head to um, be able to receive those thoughts and be able to keep thinking, keep shaping and reshaping how I'm, you know, interpreting the world around me. So those are kind of my very actionable offerings that people can, you know, consider if they want to try to, again, get more robustness in their training and also to help perceive their um uh, their cognitive uh, um, concentration come workout and most importantly race day. Jonathan, part of your answer is uh, inspiring me to go off on a tangent myself. We do this on the Strength Running Podcast. Let's too. do it. Love it. Yeah. Love tangents. <laughs> so you know you're talking about uh, GPS watches, how they're so great, but you know there are some limitations to those. Uh, I actually downgraded my tech about a year ago. I'm wearing a $35 Timex running watch with a stopwatch, mm-hmm. and I've never been happier. And mm-hmm. you know I'm. I think we're similar ages. You know, we, I grew up training and learning to be a runner without a GPS watch. So I had to learn how to be a runner based on how I felt. And when we're talking about effort, when we're talking about being comfortable, being uncomfortable, being okay with the race hurting 30 seconds in, like Chris Linsky was telling you, do you think GPS watches are in any way blunting the education of runners with the 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 language and communication that their bodies are trying to communicate things to their brain so you know everything from you know we're out during a tempo run and you don't have a gps watch you know let's listen to you know your heart rate your breathing how your legs feel the feel of the wind against your legs all of the many tiny inputs that influence your perception of the effort do you think gps watches are sort of cheapening that I mean, they're very attractive, right? Because they allow concrete uh, accounting. And people, we love this. I mean, we just, you know, it's why casinos are set up the way they are and why social media is set up the way it is, right? No one would post on Instagram if the likes didn't exist. I mean, you know, it's it's addicting. And it's the same thing here with the GPS watch. Like, you know, being able to get all these inputs and track all these numerical things or like with Strava, et cetera, they're not bad. But you have to know how to use the tool, not let the tool hijack what you're doing. And, you know, you're spot on, Jason. Like that kind of, you know, as Lauren Fleshman calls it, this woo-woo, this little like blend of art and science or the soft and the hard, you know, very Eastern philosophy, yin and yang type perception. That's critical to our well-being, not only as an athlete, but as a person. And when you lose sight of that communication with how you're feeling in the moment and then knowing like, all right, it's just a rough patch, I can get through this, or if it's actually like, man, I am just deteriorating and I need to pull the cord and, and, and cut this workout or cut, you know, cut this training run just because I feel awful. Like when we look to the permission of the external numbers that a, a watch or a GPS watch or any other type of uh, analytics offer us, and that is the um, permission granting um, authority and not us, I think we're starting to lose our way. Um, again, I'm all for, like I said, you need to have a very um, in-depth and uh, firm understanding of like these basics, like physiology is the foundation, right? So as a coach and as an athlete, you must 
be well steeped in these things. It's it's not to say like they're not important. Um, you know, I don't I hate to minimize them. It's just from where I'm at in my journey and my coaching practice, that's you know so you know it's it's so far in the rearview mirror from my education that yeah I go and I revisit them and I refresh and I you know uh, stay up to. Um, up to date on what's what's coming out but same deal here with the numbers the numbers tell a story or they help support a story but they aren't the story and that's really uh important uh, distinction we must make is they're supporting but they're not the the um the the main actors right they're not the main roles what the the main actor is is you it's you, the person. What are you doing? How are you feeling? What's your perception of the environment? And I think that's critical to remind ourselves that they play a supporting role, but not a primary role in how we, you know, train, elect to train, and then also how we elect to measure and track progress. And I think that's the hardest part, right, is, is the numbers afford us this concept of linear growth and linear progress, right? Chronologically, we get older every year, and that's very attractive. However, there's a lot of variabilities and ups and downs with performance, right? And this is where a lot of athletes get frustrated. Like, I'm running these times in practice or I'm running these main miles a week. I've been doing it for, uh, you know, six months, nine months. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And, you know, we keep asking that question because we think there's this linear correlation here. And it's not. You know, we have to say, well, what's right and what's missing? And if we ask that question, okay, what's right? these number of things now what's missing i think nine times out of ten you get a better answer versus getting super frustrated with the things that are wrong and wrong and wrong and then picking apart everything because you're coming from a space of insecurity rather than security so again you know i i don't blame the gps watch by any means it's a beautiful piece of technology i blame you know or i question our own discipline to be able to interpret um what those numbers offer in a, a useful way for us individually to maximize our preparation and also more importantly, maximize our performance on the, the stage that is a race. Yeah, that is a, that is a hard thing to do. I think, uh, I, I, I struggled with that myself when I had a GPS watch, you know, I tried the, all the typical suggestions of turning it to time of day after you've started it so that you can simply look at it at the end of a run. Um, you know, this might be the cranky old man telling the kids to get off their lawn, but I sometimes wish we could go back to the days where if you were on the track, you knew how fast you were going. If you were out on the trail or road, then you were running by time and effort. And I think mm -hmm. the marriage of those two is such a, uh, a great way to help uh, beginning runners and, and those runners who, who do need to learn more about the signals that their body is giving them, uh, because I think you, you just get more out of that kind of a dynamic. Oh, yeah. I mean, I only prescribe like, you know, off the track time. You know, I only say, hey, today's a you know training run between 40 minutes to an hour, you know, and you know, I don't really prescribe a pace. I don't really prescribe mileage. I just say, here's a wide range and go run somewhere within the tolerance of that range. And sometimes people are like, okay, I'm going to run the maximum because I feel great. Or, well, today was a struggle, so I'm going to run the minimum. Or maybe you run a new route or you get caught up with friends or you meet some, I see a friend on the trail you haven't spoken with and you run, you know, 47 minutes. Great. Who cares? But, you know, it's it's the, the thing I question is, you know, we see it all the time, right? That person who gets to the end of a, a training run with colleagues or friends or peers and the GPS says, you know, 6.89 miles. And then they do the little jog around in a circle, right, just to get it so the GPS says seven miles. 
And it's like, what's it for? Why? Why? Why would you even do that? Like, who cares that it was six point eight nine miles? If forty seven minutes, it's fine. You know, I think we again we're um, we're missing what the purpose of the activity is to try to get the, to try to create purpose in the activity by having it correlate to a certain number of, uh, of accounting. Right. I mean, that's just my own little, like, again, old man rant, if you will. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Um, let's, let's transition a little bit. I want to talk about your coaching philosophy before we wrap up. Uh, you recently summarized it as prepare to perform with a clear vision of victory. Uh, yep. I think, I think most runners will understand what pre prepare to perform means. It's the training, it's the preparation to run, whatever the event is that we're going to race. But I think for the average runner, for definitely for the you know more recreational intermediate runner that you know I typically work with, you know this this is not the runner who's literally going to be victorious in most races. Mm -hmm. um, you know, knowing that, how can we apply this? clear vision of victory to improve our performances for you know the rest of the pack i think vision is the most important thing here right and that's the most difficult thing to ascertain and define and we know you need to see clearly like you need to have 2020 um vis vision moving forward in the world otherwise you know it, i remind people all the time if you don't have a target you you can't have a, a dialogue with your support network or your coach or you about how close you were to the bullseye or not. And that's really tough for a lot of people to take ownership of and say, look, here's my target. And there's a difference between targets and goals, in my opinion. Um, goals are kind of going to be like, say, time-based. I want to break three hours for the marathon. I want to break 16 minutes for 5K. That's a goal. That's great. But a target to me, is a target event, a target performance. So whether it's going to be um, the, the Boston Marathon or Olympic Trials Marathon or Olympic Trials on the track or whatever, that's the target. And then you're saying, okay, what kind of skill set or core competencies do I want to possess by this target race to allow me to do the thing I want to do on that performance venue in that endeavor? So whether it's making an Olympic team or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, hitting Olympic trials qualifying mark or whether it's breaking three hours and 30 minutes and finishing somewhere in the top hundred of your age group for that event, whatever it might be, there needs to be concrete um, qualifiers there. Otherwise you're just shooting arrows into the ether and we can't say, did you hit the bullseye or not? And what I remind people of is like when you're starting out, you want, you know, it's just like archery, right? You keep the bullseye really close. So you get used to it. And that's, that's why I call small wins. You get used to it. And so the tolerance is really wide. So, you know, for a concrete example is saying if I'm trying to ha run a half marathon in three months, well, you can have a small win and a small goal, which is, all right, I want to run a half marathon anywhere between 80 minutes and 85 minutes somewhere. And so that tolerance is really loose, right? It's really wide there. But as you get more accuracy, then what you need to do, and this is, we know this is through deliberate practice, how we get better and become more skilled and more masters of craft, move the target away further, and then also shorten or narrow the tolerance. So, Great, I ran 84.29 for this half marathon, a place in the top three. That was awesome. Now you kind of start to move the target back. Say, okay, now I want to try to train a, a space of 75 to 77 minutes for the half marathon and want to have competency at that. 
and I'm, I'm going to target this race six months out. And this is the race I'm going to hold account to to be ready in that form by then because I think you know, having that ability will have me be in the top five or compete for the top 10. So it, it's multi-layered victory, right? And so along the path to victory are need to be clearly identified small wins and performance-based small wins. And then as you get better, your accuracy gets sharper and the target gets further away, it becomes more of a moonshot, if you will. But you're also a lot more prepared people to nail that bullseye and so when i you know work with an athlete you know i'll use like say um eleanor fulton as a good example um a, a graduate of university of washington she came and she was a 419 1500 meter runner one time all american but felt like she had a lot more left in her and really wanted to pursue um competing at a national class and budding world-class level on the track in women's middle distance here in america and so we sat down and we said, okay, great, here's the targets, you know, here to get you to where you want to go, or here are the small wins. The small wins are qualified to this meet, this meet, and this meet. And by nature, having to qualify to these elite national class invites, you're going to have to run faster to meet those qualifications. And then the benefit's going to be if you continue to progress in performance on in those lead invites you'll then qualify to the national championships which she's never she never did outdoors she was able to do that and you know four times in a row now she's never missed a outdoor or indoor and outdoor u.s championship since she's graduated college but then it was like okay now you're here now make it to the final so you've never been here so don't just be like hey i'm happy to be here let's do something and then let's make it to the final then she makes it to the final and you know she gets dead last because that's as far as her vision of herself supported like there was no contingency of saying oh i'm in the final now let's get top five or top six she just wasn't prepared with that vision of herself yet and so now that work is shaping her vision of saying i'm going to get to these i know i can make these national championships now now I'm here, what's my vision of myself and what's the bulls I want to shoot for to do this? Is it top five? Is it top six? And then knowing the other competitors in her space and what they bring to the table and what she brings to the table, how can she prepare to create in that environment? And then go for it. You know, and she may get ninth and she's shooting for like top five. That's okay. You missed the bullseye. But we can debrief and get better there. And that's the difference between, you know, um, the popularized 10,000 hours rule and the reality of the 10,000 hour rule, which is you can't just go through the motions and just put in 10,000 miles or 10,000 hours has to be deliberate. There has to be feedback. There has to be critique from an informed party that's really helping to elevate you. So the victory component is very critical because you need to define what that win looks like to you and have a clear vision of work you're working towards. And it can't just be time-based. It has to be multidimensional and process-oriented but with a clear result. So there's a lot going on there, but I think that is what I've found is the way to best support an athlete's growth and development and competitive prowess as they get better and faster and they reach that goal. Because I don't know about you, Jason, but you know how many times have you know I've worked with an athlete where they met their initial goal, which was to run a time or to get a new PR or to qualify the Olympic trials, and then they got there and they were really ineffective and they really didn't know what, what they're going to do once they got there. And they left with a sour taste in their mouth. And I go, I don't want that for anyone I work with. I don't want them to have a sour taste in their mouth at the, the height of their competitive um, experience be, simply because they or we did not collaborate and create and co-craft 
a, a clear vision about once you get there, then what? And I think we all, a lot of times we're so focused on getting to the top of the mountain that we, you know, don't have a clear vision or intent about what to do once we get to the top of that summit. I feel like you're talking about me right now. <laughs> it was like the, the last race I ever ran in college was the New England Championships 3,000 meter steeplechase. And um, my entire goal that season was to qualify for the New England Championships. Right. And uh, I, I think there was a lack of communication. A lot of it was my fault uh, with the coaches and that I got to that race and I didn't know what to do. What was my goal? What was my vision of victory? I had no idea. Now, that race ended up being a PR for me. I, I had a good race. I, I was kind of happy with it, but it did kind of... I, w I just felt unmoored. I wasn't going after a really strong goal in that race. And I think when runners do have that that clear vision for uh, exactly what they want to do at a given competition or race, then they're not only going to be more successful, but I think they're going to be more fulfilled and satisfied with their racing. Yeah, you have to be, you know, open to you know, fear. I mean, you have to let go of fear of failure. And then you also, too, have to let go of fear of success. And I think, you know, many people and runners, athletes, and just, you know, normal people in life have one or the other fear. And once you let go of that because you have a target that's very clear and very concise and very precise, um, you, you achieve a lot more. And because failure is the ultimate teacher, right? And that's, I think we have to just get over that f general fear we have about failing and success and say, it's a journey. It's, it's curious. It's exciting. Let's see what we can do because then you could have, you could have had with your coaches a very, you know, um, clear debrief with them saying, Jason, that was awesome. Your goal is top three and you got second and you're, and you PR'd. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Great. Oh, you best race ever. Right. But then they're just like, Oh, you, you got you got here. That's awesome. Oh, you PR'd. That's awesome. Like you just sh kind of showed up, and you didn't know what to expect. And like, you know, that does leave people with a little bit of a hollow feeling afterwards. And you don't want that. Like that's not why we put in the hours, why we do the work, and why we train. You know, with such deliberate consistency and dependability, we do. So I think, again, it's it's just more being um, being ready for those moments, and coaching and preparing to those moments that will make the moment truly something that you can remember fondly forever. Well, Jonathan, we've talked a lot about the psychological side of running today, and I think you've gotten me really interested in in diving into that area of, of training, more mental training after our conversation today. So um, it's about time to wrap up. I just want to thank you for, for taking the time to be here, for sharing your wisdom. There certainly was a lot of it. And um, I just have one question before we close. If you had a time machine, you could go back to the first day that you started running, what advice would you give yourself? Go slower. <laughs> go slower. <laughs> yeah. With everything. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, take your time. Like, you know, being a young man, I was just in such a rush that first day of running. And I, I unfortunately, was one of those athletes and young, young uh, athletes who was just always hurt because I just want it all now as super impatient as any youth is. And, you know, this is my quick little tangent on uh, the modern athlete that we have in our, this day and age, the millennial athlete. You know, a lot of people say they're entitled. I disagree. I just think they're impatient, you know, more impatient than most adolescents are in this day and age. And we just have to be cognizant of that reality. Like they have the smartphone, instant gratification. They put something up out in the social media world, instant feedback, instant feedback. And you got to remember, running is not a game of instant feedback and instant gratification. It's 
a long, patient commitment. It's a lifetime relationship. And I think that's how we can get the most out of it is understanding the um, the length of time that's required to change an organism and change a, a physical being and to get that you know entity to a new level of c- capability. And so you have to be super patient and there'll be dips. It won't be linear, you know, just because you're, you know, we see this all the time. Oh, I, this season was so great. I said all PRs next year is going to be even better. You know, and that's really the case, right? You have ups, you have downs. And it's people who are in it for the long haul and just love the lifestyle. I think there are people who um, continue to enjoy it and make the most out of it. So, you know, kind of going back to what I would tell myself is slow down, don't get hurt. You don't need to run, you know, 70 miles your first week of um, cross-country practice. You can run 40. It's okay. <laughs> you're just making sure you're signing up to doing this for a long time. That's what matters. Awesome. I love it, Jonathan. Thanks so much for being here. I certainly learned a lot, and uh, I think our listeners did too. Yeah, my pl- pleasure, Jason. It's a privilege. Thank you. Yeah, it's no, I, I really enjoy your guys' uh, conversations that you have just because, you know, for, for me, I'm... Um, you know, I'm I'm working with the people who are trying to qualify for Boston, not the people who are trying to qualify for the trials. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I certainly take a lot from um, how you guys work with your athletes and apply that to my own athletes uh, in kind of a scaled down fashion. So thanks for all you do. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work. Really appreciate it. Just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, no, thanks. Same to you. I mean, that audience is a really important audience to engage. I mean, they're the core of the culture, right? And so it's like, that's why I always, always will take the time, you know, for podcasts that are kind of geared towards these audiences because, you know, the culture matters and we can sit here at the high performance level or elite level and think like, oh yeah, you know, we're awesome, but we're just a small, small fraction of the population, right? And so the work you're doing or, you know, people who like, um, you know, with Final Surge or other like of those kind of more broader general populist coaching, you guys matter so much. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we're influencing and helping. Like it means the world to me to hear that, Jason. So I appreciate it and the work you do. Yeah. And these runners are the the fan base for the future yeah. huge track and sport of track and field. If it ever grows, <laughs> which I'm hoping it does. At some that, point. Yeah, that's a whole nother dialogue. But, uh, yeah. you know. I think, well, yeah. yeah, I'll let you go. Or uh, we could probably talk <laughs> yeah. for another hour just yeah, about that. Totally, totally cool. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate All it. Right. Man. Thanks, Jonathan. Take care. There it is, Coach Jonathan Marcus. This was one of the more interesting podcasts I've done in quite a while, and I hope you enjoyed it. Successful runners ha- often have an understanding of training nuance and work really hard at developing their psychological skill set. Jonathan helps shed light on these issues, and I hope you're able to implement just one idea from this podcast. Finally, before you leave today, a big thanks to our new sponsor, SteadyMD. If you go to SteadyMD.com slash strengthrunning, you'll find more information about virtual, on-demand, running-specific primary care from a doctor who specializes in endurance athletes. It's a new model of healthcare for athletes, and I think it's a fantastic service for the performance-minded runners out there. Head on over to steadymd.com strengthrunning to see all the details. Thank you again for listening. I'm always grateful for your attention and support. We'll be in touch soon.